Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Lee Boyd and Rob Beller. Hey, Podcast World, welcome to another internationally exciting, remarkable, educationally interesting, multi-chapter version of... (laughs) (laughs) That's the longest one yet. Sure Tech, that's right. We're the one, we're the only, except no imitations, FNO InsureTech. No one covers the world of InsureTech quite the way we do. No, no, there's, there's nobody. There's nobody out there. In fact, mm-hmm. if somebody says that they follow InsureTech, don't believe them. Only listen to us. We are the only one. That's right. In fact, if I could, I could pick my mic up. It's kind of big and bulky and drop mm-hmm. it, but it would break. But it oh, would be a be good a, time for a mic drop, wouldn't it? That would be, but that would uh-huh. be expensive. And I would prefer that you not do that. Right. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that, but I will, I do want to uh, change directions for a second. And I want to talk about a trip that I took in 2002 and I ended up, make a long story short, I ended up in a place called Lauterbrunnen, Switzerland. Okay. And for those of you on the podcast who have ever been to Lauterbrunnen, you're like not you can't hear my voice anymore cuz you're the mental images that you have from that place are so unbelievable you can't hear and it was m- maybe the most beautiful place i've ever been on earth and i hadn't thought about it in a long time but i was reminded about it today by our yeah. guest by our why why did our guest remind you of that because he's swiss Oh, that makes so much more sense. He's Swiss by birth, and he's been to Lauterbrunnen, as we found out when we yeah. first got on the podcast. And um, and and not only that, he is he is a giant. He's huge. in from the reinsurance world. Giant, yeah, yeah, and a giant in the insurance industry, and now making his way. In the world of InsureTech, we have with us today Matthias Weber, the a, a a partner at Mighty Capital. But but to say that all he is is a partner at Mighty Capital doesn't really give full credit to 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 this man or his story. Yeah, I mean, whenever I started reading the notes on this uh, on this guest, I I called Rob and said, "These notes are amazing. This guy has done so much." Swiss Re, I mean, just. He's amazing. And during this podcast, we really get to just dive into his story. We get to talk about, you know, where he came from. I mean, the guy has a PhD. He has master degree in physics. I mean, it's just absolutely a, a blessing to get to visit with him. And, and, and that's what we get to do. We get to talk about his journey, uh, where he's been, and where he is now at Mighty Capital. And, and it, it's a very exciting podcast. I think everyone is going to love this one today. Yeah, no question about it. And... Um, and so we'll stop jibber jabbering. Jibber. 
and so that we can give it a little more because we because we ran a little long today because just we went a little content. long. Sometimes when there's a ton of content, totally you worth ju- it. You just have to push the limits, and that's the beauty of podcasting. Uh, we can pre- <laughs> we don't have a schedule, so we'll just say without further ado, here is our interview with the one and only Matthias Weber, partner at Mighty Capital. Hey, everybody, we are here with a special guest coming to you from my part of the country, the West Coast, a West Coaster. And you'll be able to tell him as he's very relaxed and very calm and very chilled out, much like all of us California people are. Cool, we dude. have with us today, Matthias Weber, partner at Mighty Capital, the venture firm. And welcome, Matthias. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Rob, and hello, Lee. While I might be as relaxed as you are, I definitely have a different accent, it seems. Where are you from, Matthias? It's uh, the southern part of Brooklyn. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I was born and raised in Switzerland, in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. Oh, how wonderful. I've been to the German-speaking part of Switzerland. I have not, yeah, but have I've been? always wanted to. I bet you've been there. Have you ever been to Lauterbrunnen? Yes, Canton Bern. Very nice. Maybe one of the most beautiful places I've ever been on earth. Yes? I love it. Yeah, it's close to Gstaad, right? Right. It's near Jungfrau. Yes. Well, let's forget all this insurtech stuff and just talk about Switzerland. Um, <laughs> I'm okay with that. I might get uh, homesick, so. As Matthias knows... And I'll tell you, Lee. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Matthias, but Switzerland is kind of broken into three parts, right? There's the French part, the German part, and the Italian part. Did I get that right? Almost. It's actually four parts. It's just uh, the fourth piece is super small, very small. So it's a German-speaking part. That's the biggest French-speaking part, Italian-speaking part. And then there are several 10,000 people who speak Romance or Reto Romance. And it's a Latin language. And unfortunately, it's about to die out because not too many people are left to speak it. Right. But it's a very beautiful language. Where are you from in Switzerland? Switzerland, I grew up in a small city, small means maybe 20,000 people called Arau. It starts with two A's. So if you list all cities of the world alphabetically, it's, uh-huh. it's high up. It's the first one. Aachen might be number one, which also has two A's. And Arau lies more or less in the center of mass between Zurich, Basel, and Bern. I think I saw it on your LinkedIn page, right? Did you go to school there? I went to school there uh, in the Alte Kantonsschule, which, by the way, is also the school which Albert Einstein went to. So we are very proud of it and always mentioning it when we have an opportunity to do so. So Albert Einstein went there, you said? Yes, before he went to the ETH in Zurich. Wow, pretty impressive. That's really impressive. We, we were talking before we got started today, and, and you'll learn this as we go, is Matthias has pretty remarkable credentials. You have great, amazing experience, including the fact that, I mean, 
let's just get down to it. You're a scientist. Is that fair to say you're, you, you have a PhD in natural science? Tell us what you are by profession before we get into talking about what you do for a living. I was a scientist. I did my PhD. I like doing my PhD. But during the PhD, I also realized that it is not what I would love to do for the rest of my life. So one year before finishing the PhD, I made the decision to actually leave physics and do something else. What was that? Insurance? You decided to get into the world of insurance out of physics? It was pure luck or pure coincidence, if, if you want. All, all I knew is I wanted to get out. And, and maybe the reason why I wanted to get out, I was a physicist in middle energy science, which means I needed an accelerator or a cyclotron in order to do my experiments. Hugely expensive. Yeah. Those are the big round things, right? That cost like billions of dollars. Exactly. Exactly. Actually, a smaller version of CERN, that was my tool. Oh, okay. And I always felt if these papers did not exist, nothing really would change in the world. And that, mm. was, that was not a good feeling for me. So I wanted to get out to do something at the time I thought that is less challenging but more rewarding in the sense that I would see an impact. What was that challenging thing that, that you got into? I'm looking here. It looks like, like you were at Swiss Re for many, many years. Was that the jump straight from physics into that? That was the jump straight from physics. And the real reason why I, I went to Swiss Re is at the time I, I was a physicist. I had a girlfriend worked for Swiss Re and I asked her whether she has some good recommendations for me. And of course, she spontaneously said, why don't you try to apply with Swiss Re? They might even take somebody like you. <laughs> and I said, I don't know a whole lot about insurance. And she said, well, but you can learn it, can't you? And of course, I was forced to say, of course I can. So I applied. Of course. And sure. that's how I ended up at Swissler. You were the hurricane guy, right? I was the hurricane guy at the, at the beginning because, you see, I, I always felt it, it's a little bit important. It's good to go out of my comfort zone, but not 100%, not completely. So I felt dealing with hurricanes is something where, as a former scientist, I felt comfortable being able to catch up on it and learn it quickly. So help us understand exactly what Swiss Re is. Everyone sees Swiss Re. Everyone knows um, that it exists. You know, at its core, what is Swiss Re? So Swiss Re, or in German, it's Schweizerische Rückversicherungsgesellschaft. That's what it's called. That's a little bit longer. <laughs> so Swiss Re at the time was largely a reinsurance company which means insurance companies insure insurance companies. In insurance, the law of large numbers applies. And in reinsurance, the large numbers are even larger than in insurance because mm -hmm. we, we, we take and we took bits and pieces. Swiss Re, Munich Re, Berkshire Hathaway, these are the 
the largest the, ones. The big boys. Yep. Big names. Or the big people. Let's not be gender specific when we talk about that. Okay. No one's going to accuse us at FNO and SureTech of, of that. So obviously, um, many years, many years at Swiss Re, tremendous um, exposure to all parts of the insurance chain, uh, mostly though it seems underwriting. So is that what, would you consider yourself an underwriter? Is that your focus? Yeah, I think that's that's correct. Uh, during my career, that's the beauty when you work for a large global companies. You can switch jobs without switching the employer and, and staying in the pension plan. And I was lucky enough to have received several opportunities by my bosses and other people in the company, as a result of which I worked both in Switzerland and in several parts of the U.S., in various functions, but as you rightly pointed out, Rob, the, the majority of the time I spent in underwriting, and it probably has to do with my background, right? Um, I'm good with numbers and with algorithms, and uh, that is important in underwriting, and therefore, whenever I did something else, after a while, I gravitated back towards underwriting. So I have a question for you on underwriting is underwriting for reinsurance and underwriting for insurance kind of the same thing or is it quite different it's a little bit of both it overlaps um, but it's not exactly the same thing underwriting insurance is to a large extent related to one single risk um, and one single risk could be a car or a or it could be a company like Boeing. And in insurance, given that, or in reinsurance, given that the insurance company insures, insurance companies, one way to reinsure is to take a portion of the portfolio of the insurance companies of their balance sheet. And of course, if you do that, that needs to be underwritten, which means we analyzed portfolios as opposed to individual risks. And the way you look at the portfolio is, is sometimes a little bit different from the way you look at an individual risk. When you look at an individual risk, you really need to understand the risk and all aspects of it. When you look at the portfolio, it's not as important to understand each and every risk in the portfolio because the law of large numbers help you. Some risks are better than others, and on average, they are maybe average, and, and right. that makes the analysis right. different. To me, just wrapping my head around analyzing a portfolio would make my brain explode. Yeah. That, 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 seems, like, that seems hard, right? As opposed to one building or one single singular situation. But be that as it may, you... So you were kind of um, in and out of the United States a couple of times. You got to spend some time in the United States. And then you kind of end up in the Bay Area. D did somebody kidnap you and bring you over to California with the rest of us crazy people? Or how did you end up over here? Are you okay if I tell you a little story about my personal Please. life? Please. We we're all about that. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so in 98, I, I moved to the US 
because I wanted to. And what I did at the very beginning is exactly the same type of work as I did in Switzerland, just in the US. And after two months, my manager at the time asked me, and by the way, I forgot to mention I moved in, I, I, I worked in Manhattan at the time. Okay. That I go to San Francisco to visit a company and a conference organized by a company with the name RMS, Risk Management Solutions. And what they do is NatCat modeling tools. And I did, as a hurricane specialist, I did NatCat modeling tools myself. So I said to my manager, no, I'm not going to do that. But he said, please do it. Do it. It's, it's a good thing. So I went to San Francisco to this conference, and there I met my future wife. Oh, how wonderful. And I brought her home to the East Coast. Of course, I, I'm fast forwarding a little bit. But at one point during my career, and she, she was from San Francisco, at one point during my career, I was offered to run the western part of the United States out of the San Francisco office. And they told me, before you move, better talk to your wife. So that's what I did. And we spoke about it for 0.3 of a second, and she said, let's do it. So we moved back to, to San Francisco. And then came a time where Switzerland in the US centralized all important positions on the East Coast. So we moved back to the East Coast, and in 2012, the company offered me to become the chief underwriting officer of Swiss Re under the condition that we moved to Switzerland. And that's what we did. Cool. And in 2017, and, and by that time, we had two boys, right? So yeah. my wife, two boys, and myself. And all three other family members were Americans. I was Swiss. And the two boys started their school career in the U.S. And then they moved with us to Switzerland in 2012. And we knew that in 2017, we had to move back to the U.S. so that they can have an orderly path to college. Else it would have been disruptive. And that required me giving notice in 2017. That's how I ended my career at Swissly. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, congratulations. That's that's wonderful. But it wasn't the end of your career by any stretch. It was just the end of your of, of one chapter of the Swiss Re chapter. Yeah. Just so that our audience knows this is a guy who's who's been around. But before we talk about where you are today and what you've done. I want to ask you a question about InsureTech because you're somebody who's obviously has had great exposure to technology and insurance, which makes you somewhat of a you know rarer bird in our industry. You've kind of got to have a, a real good view of InsureTech as it has grown and come up. Is that accurate for me to say? I think that's a fair way uh, to say it because while I was an underwriter at Swiss Re and towards the end of my career, the chief underwriting officer of Swiss Re, a huge amount of development was happening, right? For instance, the clouds got established. Right. When I, when I was a first, 
when I was underwriting the very first time, the cloud did not exist. And then the cloud was established and it changed a whole lot of things. And in underwriting, we were suddenly able to use significantly more information. The total amount of data anyway increased all the time. We were able to use technology, which we were not able to use uh, before. So our toolbox became bigger and bigger. And the same was true for all our competitors. So we were a kind of force to, right. uh, to dive into and take on, on these challenges. And therefore, part of my job as an underwriter and as a senior underwriter was included also to stay abreast of industry developments, to stay abreast also of developments in technology and on the data side, and, and basically em- embrace these opportunities and use it to our advantage. Are there still areas where we can get better? Is there still areas out there, say at Swiss Re in the underwriting world, where technology could help? Or have we found everything? No, uh, always. You, you, you find one thing and two new things pop up, right? Recently, for instance, uh, I saw that you had an interview with Pascal Miller from Cybercube. Yes. Cyber insurance did not really exist when I started my career. So it's a kind of normal in our industry that new risks pop up and then you need to, when a new risk gets established, there are no data, right? And our our industry is a kind of used to use data and use algorithms uh, to do something with the data. And then suddenly cyber insurance happened and the underwriters realized it is an opportunity. At least some underwriters realized it, but they had no data at all and no algorithms at all to deal with it. So these are challenges which have happened in the past and they will continue to happen going forward as new risks emerge. So you give your notice at Swiss Re, you move back to the United States, and are you thinking to yourself, I'm going to put my feet up and relax and enjoy the Bay Area. But that's not what happened, right? That's not me. (laughs) it, it, It would not, to be perfectly honest, one week before I retired, end of June 2017, on the Monday of my last week, I asked myself, okay, what do I do in one week from now if I panic at 10 a.m. and don't know what to do? And I promised to myself, and then I promised it also to my family, that I will continue to do something, something that satisfies me, but I wanted to do something also that requires me to get out of my comfort zone, but not completely. And therefore, the intersection between insurance and technology, I felt that was the right area to, to operate in. We moved to the US and it took me a little bit of time to figure out what to do and how to do it. 
I engaged relatively quickly with plug and play because they were also operating in the intersection between insurance and mm-hmm. technology. And that made sure that my name became a little bit better known in Silicon Valley. I was not known when I moved here at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that then allowed me to become board member of, of a small number of companies, to become an advisor to some other companies. And at one point in time, I decided to go to Stanford University to educate myself on the responsibility of a board member, because I felt it's a little bit dangerous and irresponsible if I'm a board member, but I've never really learned what that means. And my instructor, Essie Moti, she was a very good instructor. And in addition to that, she was also in charge of a VC. At one point, she asked me whether I would like to join her VC. And I said yes. And that's how I ended up becoming a partner of Mighty Capital. That's an amazing... An amazing story, and and understanding your background isn't certainly uh, isn't surprising. But you're a board member of several uh, of at least a few very well known insure techs. Just share a little bit about. You don't have to share any particulars, but uh, what's it like being a board member on the in uh, in these relatively cutting edge companies? We're familiar with CyberCube, like you said, we had Pascal Miller on. Terrific interview, amazing company, but also board member of Nex Insurance. Share about being a board member and what that's like. Before I became a board member here in the US of privately held companies, at Swissery, I was also a board member of some of the subsidiaries of, of Swissery. Swissery is publicly held. There are some similarities and there are some differences. Uh, maybe the difference, uh, the key difference first, if you're a board member of a large subsidiary of a large global company, you're a small fish. And you have your area of expertise. In my case, it was underwriting, and that's where I was very good at. And I had a little bit of general understanding for all other areas But I was a kind of, it it was clear when I was on the board there that whenever the discussion was around underwriting and technical stuff and technology, I got involved. And when the, the discussion was about sales and marketing, other people got involved. That, that is not me. So being a board member of a small publicly held company, means you get involved in the whole spectrum. It includes underwriting, but it includes also many other things. And I, I, I still remember my very first meeting at, at Next Insurance US. It was not a board meeting. It was a, a working type meeting. I thought it will be about underwriting. And in the meeting, there was the CFO. The CFO uh, started to talk to me about capital management and things like this. So the responsibility is much broader uh, if you're a board member of a, of a startup. 
what is, and, and there are many more examples, but one thing that it has not changed is the pre-reading. In Switzerland, I was used to pre-read stacks and stacks of paper in preparation for the board meeting. And here in the US, working with small startups, I thought, okay, small company means significantly less pre-reading. Mm -mm. Not the case. Significant amount to pre-read as well. That's how it is. I'm just fascinated. So, so you're on these boards, and then you decide that, I mean, you, you got invited to be on these boards, and then you decided I needed to learn more. I need to learn exactly what I need to be doing here. So, so you go to Stanford, right? And what are they teaching a guy like like you who who has seen it and and been there? I mean, what what are they teaching you there? Oh, they they can teach me a whole lot, right? When I went to Stanford and and I did it as part of the continued education program, I created basically three buckets. Uh, of areas of interest. Bucket number one is what's good for me and beneficial professionally. Okay. Uh, for instance, this governance class, which I took at Stanford, falls into this bucket. The second bucket was were classes which I took, which are good for me as a human being in my life for instance, a nutrition class uh, or how to live a healthy life up to the age of 100 years and more. That was also a class I took. Good one. And, That's and awesome. the third bucket was stuff that is not useful at all, but fun. And I did that as well. How wonderful. So let's take a couple of minutes or several minutes and talk about mighty capital and about the turn of going from you said that your professor basically invited you to to join mighty capital or to become involved as as a vc so, so share with us that story you you're an underwriter now you're a board member but now you're about to start a new chapter a couple of years ago and that is uh that of being a vc tell us about that Tell us about becoming a VC and, and, and what's involved. Look, investing has always also been an interest of mine. And there are a number of parallels between underwriting and investing. Right? In both cases, you have some track records of the past, which you can look at. In both underwriting, insurance underwriting and investing, you are taking risks in the future. In both cases, there is an upside and there is a downside in both cases as well. And in both cases, it's not just about data and numbers and facts. It's also about people. I realized this after a while going through the class provided by SC Moti, I realized that there are a number of parallels. Uh, and again, I thought that's probably another situation where if I got engaged, I would step out of my comfort zone, but not completely. 
So right. then she asked me whether I would be interested in learning more. Uh, I asked, what does this mean, learning more? And she said, well, I would like you to take another class, which she was giving. That was an investing class, which I did. And then she asked me whether I would like to sit in in a number of meetings. I wouldn't be allowed to talk, but I'm allowed to listen, which I said, yeah, very happy to do so. I, I love to learn. And she allowed me to do that and invited me. And then after a while, I was allowed to contribute to the best of my knowledge. And after a while, she asked me whether I would like to join for good. And I thought it's a great opportunity and I happily said yes. That is just absolutely amazing. So what, what do you do at, at Mighty Capital? Yeah. So Mighty Capital is a medium-sized fund. We have approximately 60 million of AUMs from three verticals. The first is technology. The second vertical is life sciences. And the third vertical is fintech, which includes insurtech. So okay. Mighty Capital had and still has um, technology experts. They have doctors and life science professionals. And in the fintech area, they had people from the banking sector, but they didn't have anybody from insurance. And that was the role that was given to me. And that was also, quite frankly, a huge attraction for me to operate in the intersection between investing technology and insurance. I'll ask you a stupid question. Is that fun? It is. It is. Tell me why. Why is it fun? I always, I, I don't like to watch TV, but there are maybe one or two things which I always liked watching, and Shark Tank was one of them. <laughs> and it has a little, sometimes it has a little bit of Shark Tanky type of character. So yeah. I enjoy, part of my job description, if you will, is to contribute uh, towards the screening of, of, of companies, triage those that do not fit our appetite from those we would like to go into due diligence with. And this means every week, my partners, my, my, my colleagues and I, we meet maybe between eight and 12 companies wow. for half an hour and the entrepreneurs, uh, typically the CEOs, they would present. And it's always fascinating, right? I'm always, it's energizing because what they do is they take a problem that exists and try to find a solution to this problem. And that's a very creative process. And I love this. I really do. I agree with you that one of the fascinating things for Lee and I about InsureTech in general, it's about problem solving. There's, there's a problem that exists somewhere in the insurance equation, somewhere. And as you know, it can be anywhere within it. And these companies try to find a piece that can reasonably be fixed by them. So if you're seeing eight to 12 a week, I'm assuming out of how many get an investment? Is it one out of 100, one out of 50, one out of eight? I mean, how, how often or 
or is that how it works? Are you trying to make a ratio or are you trying to, how do you make that decision and how often does it happen that we're going to put our money into this company? So obviously I cannot talk for other VCs, but at, at Mighty Capital, um, there are approximately 4,000 companies crossing the desk or crossing the screen of somebody at Mighty Capital. Um, these 4,000 get condensed down to 400 relatively quickly by a senior associate, and the 400 that make it, they get invited. It used okay. to be face-to-face, -face, but now it's via Zoom or, or uh -huh. similar type of technology. They present to us. And that's what I described a little bit sloppily as the Shark Tank type. Yeah exercise. Typically, there are three, four partners and a GP who conduct these interviews. Um, and together, these 400 companies, we condense them down to 40. We make wow. due diligences of approximately 40 companies per year. And of the 40 we make approximately 10 investments. So 10 out of 4,000. Wow. That's a lot of work to get from 4,000 to 10. I mean, just as a practical matter, right? Yes. Was Mighty involved in Airbnb? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Okay. So, so that was, I mean, but that's a good example of you do your homework, you move carefully, and it can turn out to be an enormous uh, upside correct? That's definitely the case. And uh, in full transparency, the investment in Airbnb was made before I came on board at Mighty Capital. So all the credit for this, in my opinion, great investment goes to my colleagues, but not to me. My colleagues are not. But you're the insurance guy. Yes. Yes, I am. So can you share with us any of the investments that you guys have made in the insure tech space? The one that comes to mind quickly, am I allowed to name names? Please. We, we would Sorcero, like that. A company with the name Sorcero. Don't know whether you know it or have heard of it. What they do, they operate in the natural language processing area, specifically narrowed down to health tech and insure tech. So it's a company which can read doctor's notes in any languages, handwritten, written by a doctor. Wow. And some of these doctor notes, the handwriting is really, really bad. Very bad. And then we realized that this is what the company can do and is doing. And of course, they can do much more than just handwritten doctor's notes. Uh, but basically, their platform can understand health and health technology-related information and make people in life science better scientists and make people working with and for insurance companies make them better at settling claims or underwriting risks. And in addition to that, it's a technology company. So this company cuts across all three areas Mighty Capital is operating technology, life sciences, 
and fintech, including insurtech. Is that something you look for whenever a company comes to you, if it hits all of all of the verticals? Uh, or no, is it, it just happened this way. You just to got lucky on that one. The three verticals and sometimes, sometimes they overlap. Whenever these companies come to you, let's say these 400 come to you, what are you looking for? So for all the people listening to the podcast right now, they're thinking, how do I get to that to that 40, right? How do I break through from the 400 down to the 40 who might get an investment? What are you looking for? Is it just their idea or is it the the founder, the person? You know, what are you what are you looking for? What what helps you get to the next level? We are probably the majority of the mighty capital investments are around series A, series B. Right. And in this stage, um, typically you look at the team, super important. I, I, I think the first three things you look at is team, team, and again team. Uh-huh. But then at this stage, typically there is traction. You look at the traction. Of course, you try to understand what is the problem the company is trying to solve and what is the solution, what is the competitive advantage, is the competitive advantage sustainable. Uh, and then, of course, you have to look also at the terms of, of, of the capital rise. Sometimes... You like everything you see, the people, the team, the, the problem is a big problem, the traction is attractive, but the price tag is super expensive. Yeah. And then it's too expensive for us because that would limit the upside. That's what we look at. And, and then something that is also important, right? When you invest in a privately held company, you do it with a view to an exit. Right. So at the very first meeting, we already asked entrepreneurs about what, what are your thoughts about exiting? Because it matters. Without an exit, a privately held company stays on illiquid. You don't see any return without an exit. Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that interests me about uh, venture funding is uh, winning and losing. We all love to hear the stories about the Airbnbs of the world and 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 whoever it may be that that somebody got in early and uh, uh, and the company took off and grew and there was an enormous exit and everybody was excited. But sometimes that doesn't happen, right? Sometimes the opposite happens. How does a VC or how does Mighty Capital kind of protect your downside? Well, what is really important is the underwriting, right? If you do a good job on the underwriting side, yeah. you, you still have dogs in your portfolio, but you have less dogs compared to a situation where somebody doesn't do a good job on the underwriting side. And uh, of course, that's that's a little bit where... I have 25 years of insurance underwriting experience. I have just one year of investing underwriting experience. So sometimes I play a little bit the role of an underwriter who looks at an underwriting challenge in investing from a different angle compared to my colleagues who have all of which have much more 
investing on the writing experience. But at the end, it's about typically when the companies see us, these 400 companies, they all have had some successes in the past. And the big question is to figure out, will it continue to be good going forward? And that's what it is about. So risk selection matters, but then the VC, they can contribute a lot. We like to sit in the boardroom of the companies we invest in. And uh, as a board member or board observer, we like to provide governance, but we also like to provide advice and yeah. help and offer our network and our prior life operational experience in order to make the company help become better. I actually read that online that after after you invest in a company that you you provide one on one coaching, uh, you help uh, hire, promote, you know, do things like that. And I thought that was really interesting. I would imagine that whenever you're going to invest in a company, not only is it like, hey, I'm going to give you some money. I also want you to do all these things. We have to have a board seat or a board advisor or whatever. I assume that then goes back to the company to, to decide if they want the money, right? Maybe they just want the money, but they don't want the advice. They don't want the help. Does that happen? If somebody gets help for free, mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say everybody at least is willing to look. Is the help really that helpful? And to the extent that it is, why would somebody not want to get, to get this help? In the specific case of, of Mighty Capital, obviously the partners are providing a significant amount of this help. But in the, in, in the specific case of Mighty Capital, Mighty Capital happens to be also the exclusive partner of a network with the name Products That Count. That's a network of approximately 300,000 product managers worldwide. Wow. And Mighty Capital is the exclusive partner of this network. And what we do, if the entrepreneurs are interested in doing this, and 80% of them are, we link them into the network and allow them to interact and get advice from senior product officers from the network directly with respect to product-related matters. It allows them also, everybody needs to have good product managers, right? And sometimes they are a bit hard to find, but if you have 300,000, yeah. even if only 5% of them are looking for a job, that's still a very big number. Right. And some, sometimes the solutions these entrepreneurs come up with are interesting to product managers. And then they have 300,000 people who are here and around to give feedback and potentially buy it. And you know, that's the value we create. That's wonderful. And that's that's interesting. That, that's just one last thing. One of the things that we've discovered early on um, in doing the podcast is that many times in a company, there's a pivot because many times they came up with an idea but somewhere else had a better, where, where the solution that they came up with was better used somewhere else, maybe even in a different vertical than what they were originally thinking, and therefore the pivot. Is that, 
in part what you're talking about, the benefit of, of, of this network that you're involved with? Well, it, it, it could be, to be perfectly honest, uh, we do not necessarily, we, we prefer the term evolution to pivot because okay. evolution implies, okay, we'll go it with that. implies like okay, it didn't work and let, let's do something else. And evolution uh-huh. implies more to become better. And um, yeah, product account definitely helps um some of the companies we engage with uh, improve their products, come up with better products that are better tailored to the specific client needs. We have so enjoyed your story and and getting all the way up to the latest chapter that yeah. we've, we've way gone over on time today. So we apologize for that. But we're going to have to bring this to a close and and just say how... Uh, honored we are to have the opportunity to talk to you, to uh, not only hear a little bit about Mighty Capital, but also to hear so much about your story, which is a great story. And and uh, please, uh, our door, our microphone is always on. So yes. uh, please keep in mind to uh, come back and visit us soon. And Maybe uh, on bring, the uh, next investment. Yeah, bring bring a founder with you. That would be really interesting. Will do so. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thank, really thanks, Matthias. Thank you, Matthias. You know, Lee, usually when we have a guest, it's all about the company. But we knew that this was somebody that we needed to talk about him a lot, too. Yes, that is absolutely right. Sometimes we we get, you know, fortunate. I mean, sometimes we're just so fortunate to have people who have been a part of the uh, insurance world for so long and at these huge companies. And I believe he's the first one that we've had from Swiss Re uh, where, where he is no longer. But I mean, it was just a wonderful conversation to get to talk about everything he has I- I- experienced. Well, this gentleman for over five years was one of the top insurance executives in the world. He was right. the chief underwriting officer of Swiss Re. He was a member of the board. I mean, this is a, a Hall of Famer in our industry. And so to have somebody like that on, you, you have to talk hear about, about you, ha- you, have to, you have to hear the story. And I'm going to tell you what I was so impressed with was when he said that he went back to school to learn uh, about being a board member. I'm thinking you have all of this world you know, knowledge. You were the big dog there in the insurance space. And you said, you know what? I need some more knowledge. And I just love yeah. that. I love yeah. that he, that he did that. And yeah. it obviously he, he was able to make connections. Just like they say, you go get uh-huh. your MBA for the connections. It's not necessarily what you learn, but the connections and it, and it served him well. Now he's, now he's with Mighty Capital. Well, we are just so appreciative to him for making the time to be with us and so appreciative to all you and really appreciative to Alicia Moss. So thank you all for being with us and for putting up with us and for joining us like you do every week. And we'll say to you what we say to everybody. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>